Awesome, guys. So just before I get cracking, I want to start with a brief word about public holidays. So I don't know who knows there's a public holiday. Everyone probably knows there's a public holiday on Tuesday, right? Everyone know that? Okay, good. Uh, if you didn't, there is one, so you don't have to go to work. That's great. If you were going to go, um, you don't have to. And um, I've been very convicted this week around being an active and engaged citizen in our country. And... Um, if we want to do that, we actually need to know about our country, right? We need to know some of the history, and our public holidays are part of that. And um, so just as I was reflecting this week, um, thinking about it, I actually have been not engaged enough around the history of our country so that I can be engaged with those who are part of our country and really be a South African who makes an impact in our nation. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a Christ follower and you're a South African, or even if you're not a South African and you're in South Africa at this time, as I see several of us this morning are not locals, but even if you aren't, to engage with the history of our country, uh, to get to know what our public holidays are about. We've got Heritage Day coming up on Tuesday. Get to know some of the heritage of our country. Even get to know some of your family heritage in this country or whatever country you're from. And especially get to know your Christian heritage of where you've come from in Christ. It's beautiful. It's enriching. God's placed you where you are for a reason. So I just want to encourage all of us to do that this week, even maybe on Tuesday as you have a day off, just to reflect a bit on what God's done and uh, what he's doing in this nation. Wonderful. We are going to be wrapping up, believe it or not, 22 weeks worth of sermons on, guess what, this morning. Ezra and Nehemiah. Can you believe it? So we took a bit of a gap in the DNA series, and we're going to be finally wrapping it up with which I, what I hope is a really um, kind of crowning sermon of the whole um, series. All 22 of them are available online or on our podcast, so if you missed them, you can catch up if you'd like to. And um, I'm going to be covering another sweeping theme this morning, so we're not going to be delving into a specific chapter or verse, but we're going to look at a theme um, from Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's entitled, No More Anticlimax. No More Anticlimax. And uh, you'll understand that a bit further, uh, a little bit later, hopefully. So I just want to start off by saying uh, a little story or testimony from my life. In 2017 and 2018, I was involved in a Bible study, uh, which was incredibly enriching and uh, just enlivening to my Christian walk. In fact, it was some of the uh, most enriching times I've had in my Christian journey the past 14 years. And uh, I remember what really stood out for me was, was this thing, as I reflect on it, is that during those times, I really got to get a better grasp of what the gospel of Jesus is all about. What it is, what it's not, um, and all these things. And, and I remember, uh, it's profoundly affected my life in, in many ways, but I remember something that really was stood out kind of within that theme. Um, and I think I'd heard it before, but it kind of really clicked during those times, was that the whole of the Bible, the whole of the Old and New Testament, points to Jesus. And now that seems obvious, right? It seems like, duh, obviously it's all about him. We know that. We're Christians, right? But do we really get that? And it's absolutely and profoundly changed the way I live my Christian life and the way I walk it out. The fact that the Old and New Testament are not separate from one another, but they're beautifully intertwined and interlinked through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they really make sense in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just get to see, as you, as you read like that, the story of God's redemptive, redeeming hand with, through his um, people throughout the centuries. And it's just incredibly beautiful. And so, and so why was it such a revelation to me? It was such a revelation because, it, as I said earlier, it really changed the way that I read and engaged with the Scriptures. It, it led to such a, an awe and a wonder, and it does still, and a worship 
to how God's been at work throughout the centuries with his people, bringing us, drawing us, wooing us uh, closer to him. And so if you're not a Christ follower here this morning, God has been doing that. For thousands of years, he's been drawing a people to himself, and he's calling you even this morning to come to him, if you would. And so um, it's kind of like this the illustration I was thinking about as I, as I um, was thinking about it was, it was kind of like I was walking around with blurred vision, not kind of seeing things, but not really seeing them. And then at these gospel lenses, God put on my eyes, and suddenly I could see clearly. And I had a whole new world in the scriptures and in faith to discover. And it's been an incredible few years doing that. And so it was, like, it was here's just a few examples. It was like kind of, now when I read the story uh, of David, kind of picking up a few stones and hurling them at a giant, Goliath, it wasn't just that anymore. It was a picture of Jesus defeating the ultimate enemy, Satan, while we tremble in our boots like the Israelites, hoping that he would win the victory, which he has. And it wasn't, it wasn't anymore just kind of Abraham leading Isaac up a mountain to be obedient to God and offer a sacrifice, but a picture of our father God leading his beloved son up a mountain to be a sacrifice for us. And so the scriptures have really come alive as this has unfolded in my life. And I want to read a quick quote from a guy called um, Graham Goldsworthy in his book, According to Plan, just a one-liner which really sums it up beautifully. He says this, I know it will not always be a simple matter to show how every text in the Bible speaks of the Christ, but that does not alter the fact that he says it does. Jesus says that every text in the Bible speaks about him, and we're going to look at that in a bit more detail later this morning. And so we're going to link this into Ezra and Nehemiah uh, this morning, and you'll see how, but for us to get started in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, let me firstly say this. What I'm hoping to do this morning is to really illuminate how these Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah point to Jesus and to our eternal hope and security in him. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to have a quick look at a summary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Then we're going to look at Jesus. Then we're going to join the two, and hopefully they'll give us a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's where we're going. And so for the purposes of reminder and a refresher, we're going to have a quick look at the, gospel, uh, the Bible Project's summary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And those handouts on your chair are kind of a guide in that, so you don't have to um, write down anything, but just concentrate. You do need to focus a little bit in this video. It's lots of content, uh, and from there I'll come and uh, carry on. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. 
Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. 
which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And we're thinking, this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so Ezra and Nehemiah leaves us hanging, right? It leaves us hanging with anticlimax after anticlimax. So much repentance and then sin. So much worship and then idolatry. So much good and then not. So much anticipation and then disappointment. 
And so it's anticlimax after anticlimax. And so after reading these two books and studying them for the past many weeks that we have, uh, it leads you to that to place and to ask that question like Tamaki was saying in the video, what is God going to do to, do to fulfill his great covenant promises? What is he going to do and when is he going to do it? When will the Messianic king come to rule over the nations as was prophesied in Isaiah? And, uh, in Isaiah? When will God's presence come to dwell in his new temple as was prophesied in Ezekiel and Zechariah? When will God's kingdom come over all the nations as was prophesied by Isaiah and Zechariah? And when will the promises made to Abraham be fulfilled as was written in Genesis? And so there's tension. We left at the end of this book with questions. When is it going to happen? There's so much more. There's anticipation. How will it be resolved, this tension? When will it be resolved? Who will resolve it? And so I think you guys can see where this is leading, right? And so all this tension in Israel and Nehemiah reminds me of a situation which my wife and I are currently experiencing. On the 17th of May this year, we found out that our final shots at fertility treatment had failed. And so we've been through a whole bunch of anticlimaxes trying different treatments to fall pregnant. And so the next day, we were spending time on our knees before Jesus, and he spoke very clearly and very beautifully to us. As he told us exactly what our next steps were for our child. And Jen wrote down in eight pages what he said to us. And so he doesn't, we don't always hear him this clearly and specifically. So we made very sure we wrote it all down. And what he said to us is that we need to adopt our next child. Even gave us a name, an age, gender, race, even the social worker that we needed to work with. And so as soon as we could, in fact, the next Monday, we started the long adoption process, all the paperwork and all the stuff, and we're currently sitting in the place where we're waiting until our baby is ready for us. And so we currently sit waiting patiently. We know he's spoken to us, God. He's made promises. His word has come to us, but we're waiting eagerly in anticipation for his word and his promises to be fulfilled. We're anticipating the day of the new arrival. We've gone through all the ups and downs of fertility treatment. And for those of you who have experienced that, it's, it's a lot. And so we wait for his word to be fulfilled in our lives. Many self-empowered and disobedient actions on our part came to null. But his word will not come to null. And so we wait for his promises to be fulfilled. And isn't that similar in Israel and Nehemiah, we, we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. Remember, these events were happening about 500, 450 to 500 years before Jesus came. There's then a, almost a, there's, uh, there's no scripture written for 400 years before Christ comes. And so there's this big void and anticipation in which we wait for him to come. And we ask ourselves that question, like Tim Mackey said, what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises? And then into the pages of history. 2,000 years ago, into our sin-soaked world, into a created world, steps a man. But he's no ordinary man. He was miraculously conceived of a virgin and born in a little backwater town called Bethlehem. His father received a dream from an angel to call him Jesus. And so Jesus grew up in this Jewish family, loving family, as a young man, he got to know the scriptures and he lived this 
sinless, spotless life. And then at the age of 30, went down to the Jordan River and he was water baptized by his cousin John. And as he's being baptized, his cousin John said this to him. He said, he said this of Jesus, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in that same moment from heaven, God speaks out over Jesus and he says this, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then after this event, Jesus wanders off into the wilderness where he spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying and being tempted by the devil. After that, he travels into Galilee and starts to preach and he says this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And just after that, he calls a few simple fishermen to follow him and become his disciples, just like the Jewish rabbis of old would have done. And he said to them, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. He performed many signs and wonders. He spoke with the authority of as if, he was, if, as if he were speaking God's very words. He cared and loved the poor and the marginalized. He had very little, and his appearance was not much that, we, that would attract us to him. And so in Jesus' birth, in his life, in his message, many of these Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled. And his disciples weren't uh, the sharpest gents in the world, perhaps. But as they started to journey with him and walk with him, perhaps one or two things started to fall in place for them. And I bet they were asking themselves the questions, could this be that long-awaited Messiah? Could he be the one? Could he be the one who's going to rescue us? Could he be the one who's going to usher in God's kingdom? In fact, in one moment, Jesus asked them, who do you guys say that I am? And then in Jesus' final week of life, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey. He has hailed as king and, and almost worshipped as the king. And not a few days, moments later, days later, at the jeering on of the crowd and the false accusation of the religious leaders, he was held up as a criminal and falsely convicted and sentenced to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. And so we pick up the story in Matthew 27, and Megs is going to read that for us. You need a mic. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. They, then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. 
For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran up and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and the many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after their resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there, watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So here's this moment. The disciples see it happening. Our king is dead. Oh no. And as we read this, we're thinking, we see in hindsight, we know what happened. But as we read this, if we read ourselves, we see ourselves in that story and we're experiencing this happening, we're thinking, oh no. Another anticlimax. The king has been killed. The Savior himself can't even save himself. How's he going to rescue us? He said he was, the kingdom was at hand. He said he was the coming king. What's happened? Our hopes were in him. What are we going to do? And so we're going to pick up the story in Luke 24 again with a quick clip where two of Jesus' followers are walking along a road towards Emmaus. Jesus appears to them just a few days after his death. These are some dramatized versions of, or version of the events. Slow down. Slow down. We're far enough from Jerusalem. We're just, we're just two pilgrims on the road. If anyone asks us. We were in Jerusalem for Passover. We, we heard of this Jesus. We saw him preaching in the temple, but... But we never saw him. Oh, Galilean, so... Maybe, maybe we heard him preach. We heard he was from Galilee. Who's that you're talking about? Jesus of Nazareth. What about him? He was some sort of teacher. Some pilgrims thought he was the leader come to free us. So they said to us. He was condemned and handed over to the Romans. So? He was crucified. And now they said he's come back to life. <laughs> <laughs> you don't believe the scriptures. Why do you say this? Isaiah wrote that the Son of God will come to earth. You'll know human death at the hands of men. Surely Jesus told you these things would happen. I heard such things. 
you're slow to believe. My brother's house is this way. Why don't you stop with us for some food? Come. Come and eat with us. What are you doing? This is the bread of life. This is my body, given up for you. This is my blood, poured out for the healing of others. I tell you, he is risen. He appeared to us. He broke bread with us. So you can follow with me in Luke 24 from verse 33. You can turn there if you've got Bibles. It will also be on the screen. And we're going to pick up just from after these events that have happened. So this is just the beginning part of Luke 24. And this is the scripture we're going to focus on for the next few minutes. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two, that's those two guys we saw in the video, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Listen up here, guys. This is what Jesus said to them. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in that moment. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And then verse 45, then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them 
This is what is written. This is what it said, those Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so I quickly want to run through that scripture with us, and then we're going to land. Firstly, from verse 33 to verse 35. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to these two disciples. They see and they recognize who he is, like we saw in the video, and they run back to Jerusalem, a few kilometers down the road, to tell the disciples who gathered together in the upper room, I've seen him, we've seen him, he's here, he's risen, he's back. Remember, we're seeing in hindsight, eh? We know these things have happened. These guys are in the situation. They think, oh man, our Messiah is dead. What are we going to do? We're going to be murdered as well. And there he appears in the flesh to them. And so they are in this upper room, with the disciples, and they've told them that. And then verse 36, when they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. As he had said many times throughout the times he was with them, when they were full of fear, when he walks across the lake to them, he says, peace be with you. So Jesus calms the storm of their hearts as they're freaking out and they're so emotional and panicking in that moment because their Messiah has been killed. He says, peace be with you. In verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. And so what often happens is when we're really emotional and traumatized, especially when we're in bigger groups of people, right, we start to see things and imagine things. This is a well-documented thing, especially when someone passes away in our family or something. Sometimes we see these weird visions and, and pictures, and we have these weird um, imaginations in our head. And so... Um, that's what probably could have been happening in this room. And so Jesus knows. These guys are thinking, man, we're seeing a ghost. We're picturing this thing. We so want him to be back with us. And so this is what he knew they were probably thinking. And so then in verse 38 to 43, he really calms their fears. First fact, ghosts do not have physical bodies. <laughs> Second fact, ghosts do not eat food. <laughs> And so he goes and he shows those two things. And he proves that it's him because he shows them the scars in his hands and feet. And he proves it's me, guys. I'm here with you. I've risen from the dead. I'm here in your presence in this room. And then in verse 44, and this is the cracker. This is the key verse. Jesus drops this bomb. He says, guys, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. And so right there in their, in their midst, all those Old Testament scriptures, which they would have been relatively familiar with, remember at that time, those were the only scriptures they had, right? We didn't have the New Testament then. So Jesus was saying, all those scriptures were pointing towards me and be, are being fulfilled right here in your presence. What a privilege to be those men who were witnessing these events and these prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus says it's all been planned. It's God's plan from the beginning. This is not plan B. This is plan A. It's been foretold throughout scriptures. God hasn't changed his mind. And then in verse 45, then he opened up their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Oh Lord, that's our prayer. Open our minds to understand your scriptures the way that you would have us understand them. And then lastly, verse 46 to 47 he says this, this is what is written. This is what it was about, guys. This is what the Old Testament was pointing to. In some way or another, this is what it's been pointing to, that the Messiah or the King, the Anointed One, will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day, 
and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, including our very nation. These events were happening thousands of kilometers north of us. The gospel has spread subsequently through the ages, and we have received that good news if you're a Christ follower here this morning. And so praise God that the message has been preached from Jerusalem to all nations so that we could know this good news and follow this good Savior. And so do we see there's no more anticlimaxes in Christ? He is risen, guys. He's risen from the dead. He is the final word. He, the, the grave could not hold him. He conquered sin and death. We sung about these wonderful things this morning. He forgives our sins. He ascended into heaven and is interceding. He's praying for each one of you if you're a Christ follower here this morning. He's the fulfillment of the law so that we could be made right with God. He's the Messiah and a king over all the nations who rules and reigns and one day will return to finally roll out his rule over all creation. He's the new temple with, through which we can come and meet with God. He's the head of his people, the church. He's the one to which all scripture points. It's fulfilled in him. The person, Jesus Christ. There's no more anticlimax in Christ. And so then coming back to Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is going to be our link again. Remember, we had a quick look at the summary, then we looked at Jesus. Now we're going to be looking at how it links back to Ezra and Nehemiah. Here we go. Just as Zerubbabel came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which was a gracious gift from God to his people so that they could come and meet with him and be in his presence. So, 520 years later, Jesus came and said, I will break down that very same temple, which would have been just a few kilometers away from where he was standing, and rebuild it in three days. And what he was saying is that he would die and rise again. He would become the new temple in his body, the place where we could come and meet with Jesus face-to-face as his people, anyone and everyone, not just the high priest. So just as Ezra came back to Jerusalem to reestablish the law of God in Israel, which was again another gracious gift from God so that his people could come and have their sins atoned for and that they could meet with God and be made right with him, So 450 years later, after Ezra, Jesus came back and he kept and fulfilled that very same law to every dot and every cross T. He's the culmination of the law so that in him we could be perfectly forgiven. So that all our sin could be atoned for and so that we could be made right with God. And then lastly, just as Nehemiah, the final leader in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that his people could be safe and so they could be brought back together. So 430 years later, approximately, Jesus returns to rebuild the walls of his church, his people. He builds his people, a city and a nation, sorry, a city that is open to all nations to come, not just to one nation, Israel. Walls that are so strong and firm that they can never, ever be broken down. Not just physical walls, spiritual walls. He's the center of this new community, the church, the new Israel, the people of God. And so, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have all these anticlimaxes. One after another, and it leaves us with this anticipation of something more to come. And then in Jesus, we see that he fulfills those expectations. Praise God. He is the one who fulfilled the great covenant promises of God. There are no more anticlimaxes.
And so how is this useful to us? In many ways. But here's one. When we see that all of Scripture makes light in the sense of Christ, and this is referring back to the testimony I shared earlier, and when we see that all of the Bible points to Him, when we see that all of the Scriptures and the biblical history hinges on the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done in and through that incredible momentous uh, event, it really changes how we engage in our daily Christian walk, especially when we read the Scriptures and when we read the Bible. So if you're a Christ follower here this morning and you engage with the Scriptures and you read the Bible, this lens can fundamentally alter your Christian walk for the good. It's changed my life, absolutely, and I believe it can definitely change yours. And so here's some practical questions, some practical guides as you go and engage with the Scriptures in this coming week, as you go and read wherever you are uh, in the Bible at this time. Here's some practical questions you could use to try and kind of bring this gospel lens into focus as you read the Bible. Here's the first one. Very simple. How does this Scripture point to Jesus? And that starts to develop over time as this becomes a way and a lens in which you see through as you read the Scriptures. Secondly, how does the Scripture reveal the human need for Jesus? And lastly, how does the Scripture fit into the redemptive plan of God for His people fulfilled in Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? How does it point to our human need for Jesus? And lastly, how does it point to His redemptive plan throughout history fulfilled in Jesus? And so here's just a brief little practical starting point if you want to. To start off somewhere, I would recommend this. Start off in the Gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel, uh, an account of Jesus' earthly life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And uh, the beautiful thing is there you get to know a bit more of Jesus. It's an account, historic uh, account of his life. Secondly, I would start reading just a chapter a day. Take about 10 minutes if you're a slow reader. And then there's only 16 chapters, so it should take you 16 days. And that's a great place to start out if you want to engage on this journey, which I encourage you to do. And then once you're done with that, come back to someone you trust in the faith, someone you look up to, someone in this church who can guide you on your next steps in engaging in Scripture in this way and seeing Jesus in all of Scripture and getting to know Him better. And so that's just a practical starting point to apply today's message to our daily lives. And so when we read Scripture like this, it changes us, and it's changed me. And here are three ways and three things that have started happening in me and will start happening in us when we see Jesus in all of the Scriptures. First one is we see God's incredible love for His people. God's incredible love for His people. We see our incredible need for Jesus. And thirdly, we see God's love for all people and that they would come to him. Those three things have just been burst in my heart and have started to read the scripture like this. It's been incredible. And just imagine those three things were bursting in all of our hearts. Imagine we were daily tasting of God's love for us, if we were daily humbling ourselves before him, knowing and confessing our need for him, if we were daily pleading to him for the salvation of our friends and family, imagine what would burst forth from us. We wouldn't be able to contain doing something about it, loving our neighbor, even those we really don't, or are difficult to love, caring for the poor, even when it's super inconvenient, and 
reaching, uh, sharing the gospel, reaching out to our friends and family, even when we might be shamed or cast out of that friend group. These are the sorts of ways when the scripture boils, bubbles in us like this that we, we, we start to live empowered by his Holy Spirit. And I truly believe that when we, when we do this as a community, when we read the scriptures together, I want to encourage you not just to read on your own, but maybe with people you know. Journey together, it's a grateful accountability, it's grateful seeing deeper insights. But when we do this, I really believe we become like this kind of army of ordinary Christian people who live in obedience to our God and see our town changed because of it. An army of ordinary Christian people making a genuine impact and influencing our town for their good and for God's glory. And so I want to close with this story, a very quick testimony. Uh, just the other day I was sitting, uh, reading the scriptures in the morning, and uh, really um, reading them in this way, and really felt God say to me to write down my story, some of my story, and reflect on some of the story of how Jesus has worked in my life. And so I did that, and then I really sensed him saying, and pray that you would have someone to share it with uh, today. And so prayed that prayer, um, got up, and actually didn't think much of it post that time. And that evening, I got this incredible opportunity from my close family members who is not a follower of Jesus to share my story with them. And not just to share my story, but to really engage with that family member around faith. We'd never had a conversation um, at this depth uh, around spiritual things ever. And so it was just an incredible breakthrough moment as Jesus inspired me through the scriptures to reach out with his love. And he came, and it was just a beautiful start of what I believe is going to be a journey with that person. And I pray that they will one day come and meet with Jesus. So can I ask us all to stand? We're going to close. And so I'm going to call us to respond this morning in two ways. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a minute. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christ follower, you're looking into uh, the faith, you're not quite sure maybe even where you stand at this point. And maybe asking the question, what qualifies you to come to Jesus and become one of his followers? I want to say to you this morning, it's not about being nice or being better, or ticking a few boxes, getting your life in order. The only thing that qualifies you to come to Jesus and become his follower is your sin and the fact that he created you and he loves you. And he desperately desires for you to know and experience his matchless, perfect, good love. And so I want to say to you this morning that Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, he opened the way for you this morning to come to God. To come and be made right with him and enter into personal relationship with him. The door is open this morning. The way is open to come and meet with God and be made right with him as you are. Come as you are to him. And so if that is you this morning, or perhaps you've kind of drifted away from the faith from following Jesus and you've kind of gone your own direction but you want to come back. I want to create an opportunity for you right now to respond. 
And so if that is you, you want to come to Jesus this morning. I want to ask you to be bold, to just pop up your hand quickly in this moment, and then I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and you'll just copy or follow after me under your breath. If that is you this morning, can I ask you to be bold and courageous and raise your hand, and we're going to pray a prayer together this morning of coming to Jesus, becoming one of his followers. Anybody like that this morning? We're going to pray together. If you want to pray this prayer under your breath, you're welcome to, to join in. Close your eyes and you can just copy after me. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me, that you died for me so that I can know you. Thank you for forgiving my sin so that I can be made right with you. I repent this morning of my sin and I come to you. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you call me your child this morning as I come to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. did respond this morning, I want to just ask you to be bold as well and just come to chat to me at the end. I'll be standing here in the front. Just love to chat through a few more of the practicalities around what it means to connect with Jesus. If you're a Christ follower this morning, I want to invite you to come up to the communion table. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is you're going to grab your communion and come back to your chairs. And as you sit there, I want to read an incredibly beautiful Old Testament prophetic scripture over all of us and just let us reflect on what Jesus has done for us as we see his body and his blood represented before us. So come and grab and go back to your seat.